The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. In 2021, The Economist ran a cover page, and on the cover was a picture of Taiwan, and on the top it said, the most dangerous place on earth, because China, right? So my wife and I have been in Taiwan for 13 years. We've been doing full-time ministry for about eight years, and we started a church plant Sunday service about four years ago. And so the real question is, what is God doing in Taiwan? And if I had one story to illustrate what God is doing in Taiwan, it would be this. Um, So in the place we do ministry is less than 0.5% Christian. So there's one church for every 40,000 people. And most people in Taiwan uh, practice traditional Taiwanese religion. And so if you go to their house, they'll have these shelves that have idols on them. Like if you've seen Gladiator, you know, he's got like the little idols he puts up there. Or if you see Mulan and she goes out and there's like the place where they, like that's basically what it's like in everyone's house. And so anyway, this past year there was a woman who got connected with our church through English outreach, got started coming to church, then became a Christian and got baptized. And then this past spring, right before we came here, she was in Bible study with my wife. And then during the Bible study, she looks at my wife and she's like, you know, Kate, I thought when I became a Christian, it would be enough to tear down and get rid of the idols in my house. But through this Bible study, through reading the word, I see that God is also calling me to tear down idols in my heart. And then she gave some examples of what those were. So what is God doing in Taiwan? He is tearing down idols, and he is advancing the gospel. So I'm really excited to be here this morning to share with you. We're going to continue in the series in James. But if you'd like to know, get to know us, know what's going on in Taiwan, you can grab us in the back. I would love to talk with you some more because God is good, and he is doing good things all over the world. And in some ways, this kind of leads into what we're doing this morning because we're going to look at James 2. And uh, James chapter 2, James picks up the idea that the gospel will impact our life in such a way that it transforms how we live everyday life. So I think, you know, the story of this woman illustrates that in very concrete terms, tearing down idols. But it's also happening for us. So this morning we're going to look at James chapter 2. Uh, verses 14 to 26. So if you have your Bible, you can open that up now. And um, so previously in James, he was talking about how if you have God's grace, if you have experienced that grace, it will not let you look down on anyone because we all know that it's only by God's grace that we come to him. And in this passage, James is going to pick up the question even more specifically. And this passage is all about What exactly is the relationship between our faith in Jesus and our changed life? Or, as James puts it, what is the relationship between faith and works? And so let's read James chapter 2, 14 to 26, and find out. So James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, 
and one of them says to you, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled in that saying. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is powerful. Thank you that your word changes us. And please, this morning, change us to become more like you for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Try not to lose your spot. Got it. All right. So my friend, uh, pastor in Taiwan, he tells a story about when he was in youth group, and his youth group was pretty hardcore because what they would do is the youth group students would have to go home and as like homework write out these huge passages of scripture each week and then bring them back. So he tells me he goes one week their homework was to write out First Corinthians thirteen which is the love passage, right? Love is patient, love is kind, does not envy. So anyway, he's in his room, and he's working on his homework. Love is patient, love is kind. And his younger brother comes in, and is very younger brothery. <laughs> what are you doing? Come play with me. Look at me. What are you doing? Don't do that. Come over here. So my friend, <clears throat> you know, when he was, he, at this time, he was like, I can't do that, leave me alone. And that little brother did not leave him alone. So he's trying to write his homework. Love is patient, love is kind, and his brother will not leave him alone. So finally, he grabs his brother, pushes him out of the room, throws him out the door, and slams the door. And he goes back to his desk. <sighs> love is patient. <laughs> love is kind. Love does not envy. Or so now his brother is not done. His brother starts banging on the door. <laughs> Let me. <laughs> he tries to leave him alone tries to let it go, but he can't. So he walks over and opens the door. He goes, look, if you don't knock it off, I'm going to knock the snot out of you. <laughs> Slams the door again, goes back. Love is patient. Love is kind. Well, <clears throat> as little brothers are, his little brother didn't stop. And my friend opened the door, grabbed his brother, beat the snot out of his brother, till his brother ran away crying. Then he closed the door, went back and sat down. 
Love is patient. Love is kind. Now, my friend tells a story, and later, as he's sitting there, he has this moment of clarity, and the Holy Spirit convicts him, and he ends up going to repent to his brother. They reconcile. It's this moment where he realizes, wow, my life is not the same as I profess. But his experience is not abnormal. Um, for all Christians, there is often this dissonance between our faith and the lives that we live. And sometimes we're totally unaware that this is happening. I mean, one of the biggest critiques of Christians is that we don't practice what we preach. And so in your life, in my life today, there is a dissonance between your faith and your life. The way you talk to your spouse, the way you treat your kids, the way you view people who are different than you, your secret behaviors, and they're all out of line with what the Bible teaches. And James knows that's a reality. See, there's this, there's this temptation for all of us to say, look, Jesus saved me. It really doesn't matter how I live my life. This sin just isn't that big of a deal. But in this passage, James raises the bar, and he says, if we claim that we have faith but no works, that faith is dead. So the question is, how do we become aware of this dissonance in our lives? How do we close the gap between faith and life? Or, in short, how do we develop true living faith? And this passage is going to answer that question. So this passage tells us, in order to develop true living faith, we have to do three things. First, we discern true faith, we cultivate true faith, and then we rely on true faith. So first, discern true faith. Let's look again at verse 14. So verse 14, James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So, also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. All right, so here's James' point. True faith expresses itself in personal, concrete action. And he gives the case study. Like, let's say, so to put it in modern terms, you have a, a fellow Christian comes to your house or shows up at church, and you find out this person doesn't have basic necessities, and then you say, wow, it's really tough. I'll pray for you. That is a clear sign that you do not have true living faith. Okay. And you hear that and you go, well, yeah. I mean, it seems obvious. But even though it seems so obvious on the outside, we still have this disconnect between faith and life. Now, why is that? Well, James knows that it is very easy to confuse real faith with counterfeit faith. And so we need to discern true faith from dead faith. And here James gives us two counterfeits. So the first one, the first kind of counterfeit faith, I'm going to call it intellectual faith. And you can think of it like this. So a few years ago, 
I was meeting with a seminary student, and we were just hanging out, having lunch, and we were chatting. And just in the course of conversation, I was like, so what, what's God been teaching you lately in the Bible? And he looks at me straight in the eyes and goes, oh, I am so busy with theology and work, I don't have time to read the Bible. <laughs> and, I, and he's a good guy, but he had assumed or he had fallen into this belief that because he was improving his intellectual knowledge, because he was getting more and more equipped about what the Bible says, that was the same as living faith. And it's not. That's why in verse 19, James says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And so what James is saying, from an intellectual level, demons have the most accurate theology. Demons understand God way better than we do because they've seen God face to face, but they're still his enemy. And so what James is saying is learning Bible facts, protecting orthodox doctrine, studying theology, these things, super important, but they in themselves are not true faith. A merely intellectual assent is dead faith. Okay, so that's the first one. But then James talks about another kind of counterfeit faith. I'm going to call this social faith. But basically what is happening is, in the church, people confuse doing things for God for loving God. Um, it's kind of like, so my kids are all young, so I watch a lot of kids' movies. So in the movie, Rise of the Guardians, if you haven't seen it, it's okay. There's this... <laughs> There's this part of the movie where Santa Claus is trying to, like, comfort this kid, okay? But it's very obvious that Santa Claus has spent a lot of time in his workshop and has not interacted with kids for a long time. And so this kid is, like, crying, and Santa Claus is kind of, like, freaking him out, even though he's trying really hard to, like, comfort this kid. And then someone calls him out on it. And then Santa Claus in this movie, he's like, I don't have time to be with children. I'm too busy taking care of the children. And you're like, there seems to be something not quite right about that. And so that's basically what's going on here. When James talks about the analogy of this poor brother or sister coming to church, he says, and one of you says to them, go in peace. That's a problem. But did you notice what he did there? See, maybe this church has a great program to help people without homes. Maybe they have great social services. Maybe they are really involved with the need in their community. But that's not what the point, that's not the point he drives home. See, James is not saying when these people come, you make sure that you advocate for the needy. Rather, he says, what do you do when this person comes to you? It is a personal concrete expression of faith. So here's where I go wrong. See, studying theology and doctrine is very personal. Advocating for others, building programs, it's very practical. But true faith is expressed personally and practically. Where we go wrong is we confuse intellectual faith or social faith or real faith, because it's really easy to say, 
Look what I've done. Look what I've done for others. Look what I've learned. When we do that, the focus is always on the I. True faith is always focused on God and others. It's kind of like C.S. Lewis says. He goes, the point is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. So very practically, if you are aware of these counterfeit faiths, you can start to discern where you have fallen into these and where true faith needs to connect to your life. And really briefly, really practically, the best way to do that is just to ask someone. Um, say, my wife and I, when we did premarital counseling, <clears throat> the pastor goes, all right, so you guys know humility is essential to a healthy marriage. And we're like, yeah, yeah, definitely. And he goes, so do you guys think that you are humble, like especially towards each other? And we're kind of like, Ugh, yeah, I think so, yeah. And then he looks straight at me and goes, Kaylin, so when was the last time you repented to Kate for something? And I could not think of a single example. See, I thought I was humble. I thought that my faith was going to be alive and active in my marriage, and it wasn't. So here's what we do. If you want to discern where there is dissonance in your life between faith and works, you just ask somebody. And don't lean to the counterfeit face to try to excuse what they say. Instead, we cut through the counterfeit faith and we let other people help us see where our faith is out of alignment with the gospel. Because as James says, dead faith is useless. But once we do that, once we start to discern what true faith really looks like and where we're not coming, where it's not active in our life, then we can cultivate true faith. So let's pick back up in verse 21. So here James gives us a case study of living faith. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. All right, here's the key detail. The key detail to cultivating true faith is in verse 23, where James says, Abraham was a friend of God. Okay, think of it like this. So when you start dating someone, you do lots of things for this person basically because you want them to like you. Um, I remember, um, for example, last week my family went up north, um, and my wife and I were reminiscing about how when she and I were dating, and she took me to Door County, and she took me on this like 10-mile bike ride. And at that time, I hated bike riding. <laughs> but you know what? I did it. Because you got to do what you got to do, right? So back then, I went on this bike ride for her, but basically for me. I wanted her to like me. But if you ask me now, I would do anything for my wife. I would change my job. 
I would give up my life plans. I would hope that I would die for her. Why? It's not so she'll like me. It's because she's my best friend. And what Abraham is showing us, what James is showing us through Abraham, is that if you have that kind of relationship with God, that you would do anything for him because he is your friend, that's the sign you have true faith. Or in other words, true faith is just living out your love for God like you would for your closest friend. Okay, if we've got this big idea, this helps us at least in two practical ways. Okay, so first, the idea that our friendship with God is the basis for living out our faith helps us figure out what's going on with Paul and James. All right, um, a lot of people get kind of stressed out because they read verse 24, which says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then they remember how Paul back in Romans 3 is like, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And they go, oh no, the Bible's got these contradictions in it. What am I going to do? But it's not really a contradiction at all. See, Paul is saying, through faith, we accept Christ's saving work. We are counted as righteous before God only by putting our faith in Christ. There's no action on our part that can make us righteous. And then James is saying, the evidence that we have put our faith in Christ and been changed by his righteousness is displayed in concrete expressions. It proves or reveals that we have true faith. Okay, so it's like this. Um, only by believing my wife when she says, I'm your friend. Only by accepting her offer of true friendship can we be friends. I can't earn her friendship. I can't make her be my friend. But at the same time, if I really am her friend, you can prove that through how I treat her, how I relate to her. So we'll bring it back to the church world. There's lots of people who are trying really hard to be good people. They want to be moral. They want to obey the Bible. But ultimately, it's because they're afraid. They're afraid if they're not good enough, God's going to get them. And that motivation is fear. It's not friendship. And then in the church, you have these other people who do lots of religious things. But they do these things, and deep down, they're just waiting for God to give them something back to give them what they think they're due. So their motivation is reward. And that's not friendship either. Maybe if you've had friends like this, you know what this feels like. See, if you have a friend and he's always afraid that you're going to jump ship on him, so he's always doing things for you. Or you have that friend who's always keeping score. How much did you do? How much did they do? That will destroy your friendship. But if you believe this person's your friend, then you're just going to live out that friendship. And that is what James is talking about here. If we are God's friends, our faith is expressed 
in how we relate to God. It's the outworking of our faith. And this is the second implication of this. If you're God's friend, you will be willing to do whatever he asks, whenever he asks, in any way that he asks, because you love him. And that's what friends do. Um, I remember, this is a, a few weeks ago, um, my wife came up to me and goes, hey, you know when you said that? That really hurt me. And in that moment, I knew what God was telling me to do. You go repent to your wife and tell her you're sorry, that I was wrong, and ask her to forgive you. I tell you what, that is not fun. No one wants to do that. But that, but that is why James says only living faith is worth anything. Because if you're really God's friend, you will cultivate that relationship by walking with him in obedience, one step at a time. And so the question is, where is God calling you to live out that friendship? So maybe you need to repent to someone today. Maybe you need to start loving a difficult person in your life. Or maybe you just need to submit to some teaching in the Bible that you really don't like. But James is saying, being God's friend means that we trust him and we trust his love for us. And because of that, we can continually submit ourselves to his call on our life. We're not just using him. We're not just trying to avoid punishment. But real faith is proven by the works of our friendship. Real faith is expressed in concrete action. And we cultivate that faith by walking with God as a friend, in obedience, step by step. So how is God calling you to obey him as the practical result of being his friend? Once we ask that question, we have to come to the last point, which is knowing that the only way we're going to have the power to do that is if we rely on true faith. So um, Charles Blondin, he was a tightrope walker, kind of a stunt uh, daredevil kind of guy, in the early 1800s. And his most famous event was he tightroped across Niagara Falls. So two-inch thick rope, 1,300 feet. So like the big day is coming, and he and his manager, this guy named Harry, they were promoting the event. And so like they get the rope strung up, and you know, Blondin's doing all kinds of smaller tricks. Like he walks out there, and he walks back, then like carries out some pots and pans, and then walks back. And then he puts like a stove like on his back. He like carries a stove out and walks back. And actually, Blondin was quite a character, and at one point he was trying to get people to bet on whether he would fall off or not. So anyway, he was clearly having a good time. And then his, his, his manager, Harry, is also trying to get the crowd riled up. And at one point he's like, all right, who thinks that he could carry this out there? People are like, yeah. And like, who thinks he could carry this out there? And they're like, yeah. And like, who thinks he could carry a person out there? And they're like, yeah. And he's like, who would go out there with him? <laughs> and no one would do that. 
so it comes like this. So now Harry's like got the crowd all riled up, and he's in big trouble because now he's got to put his money where his mouth is. So his manager is like, he can do it. Watch me. And so Harry, the manager, climbs on Charles' back, and Charles starts walking out on this tightrope. And so they get out there, and Harry looks down over the side and starts freaking out, and he starts wailing back and forth. He's trying to balance himself. And then Charles, Charles London, the, the tightrope walker, he turns around and he says, Harry, look up. And then he says, you are no longer Harry, you are Charles. Until I clear this place, be a part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Then he says, do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. If you do, we will both go down to our death. In that moment, Charles is calling his manager, Harry, to have living faith. Not faith in his own ability, but in Charles' ability. You can imagine Charles on the rope, turning to Harry saying, cling to me. And that is the basis of everything that James is saying in this passage. In these 12 verses, the word faith shows up 11 times. And if you go back, you know, the word faith in the Greek means trust or confidence or reliance. And the starting point for everything that James says is the reliance is not in our works, but in Christ's work. See, Jesus is the only person who never had dissonance between what he believed about God and the life that he lived. Jesus is the only person who was in perfect relationship with God because he was God. And Jesus is the only person who perfectly expressed that relationship. And there's this place in John 5 where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. And then Jesus Christ, in the ultimate personal, concrete expression of faith allowed himself to be nailed to the cross, to have his righteousness put on us, our sins put on him and die so that we could become friends of God. See, that work, that love, that person is the object of this faith. So what that means is, right now, we're living, and we feel the dissonance between our faith and our works. But we're not really trying to make sure that all of our works can earn us a spot with God. We're not trying to really hard to make sure that our faith has every single right work all the time. Rather, 
we're making sure that we cling to Jesus, that we are with Jesus, one with Jesus, body, heart, soul. If he sways, we sway. We don't try any balancing on our own. Because when we do that, that's when we end up with dead faith. A faith in ourselves. A faith in our own abilities. That's also why the main point of this is it's not really about how many works you do. But whether or not Christ's life is growing in you. See, when we rely on Christ, his work lives in us. His faith grows in us. He changes us like a tree producing fruit. And when that happens, when, our, when we rely on Christ's perfect faith, the dissonance between our faith and our lives gets smaller and smaller. Until one day, we are made perfectly like him because of what he did for us and in us. His perfect faith completes his perfect work in our lives. And that's how we have concrete, personal expressions of faith every day. So let's rely on that faith this week. Let's sway with him and not trust on our own faith. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you did more than we could imagine and that you are working in us to make us new. Please show us where you are calling us to walk with you as your friend. And please give us strength to rely on who you are and what you have done for us so that we can become more like you. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.